Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Stephen Saylor, whose latest novel is The Throne of Caesar, subtitled A Novel of Ancient Rome. Stephen Saylor is the author of several novels. I think there are 16 in the Roma Sub Rosa series? Well, there are actually 14 novels and two volumes of short stories. Plus a few standalone novels, plus several books written under the pseudonym of Aaron Travis as well. Two novels that are epic history novels of Rome titled Roma and Empire. And Throne of Caesar is not listed as a Roma Sub Rosa series, even though Gordianus oh, is. is in there. Oh, yes. Well, it's funny. You just read off the subtitle from the cover, which I didn't even realize that was there because in earlier drafts of the cover, it said A Mystery of Ancient Rome. So somebody decided to call it a novel instead. It is a part of the Roma Sub Rosa series. It started way back with Roman Blood in 91 because I call it the capstone. Is it the last? You know, capstone, I, I kind of use that waffling a bit. That's like an architectural term. It means the crowning thing. But I could always do some added turret here or dig a you know, sub-basement. There, you know, there could be additions to the series. There is the hint at the end that you could write a, a mystery featuring his daughter. As she's grown up, she's definitely wanted to kind of take part in her father's business. As an ancient Roman patriarch, he frowns upon this, of course, but uh, she's very bright, and she has a kind of hulking uh, ex-slave of a husband who is sort of beauty and brawn. She and her husband could possibly take over someday. Should you decide to write more Yes, uh, yes, and go into that whole next period of Roman history. Well, let's talk about the throne of Caesar and a little bit about the research behind the book. It took you about 10 years of fretting around, Hmm. give or take, I mean, just judging by the books, to finally get around to writing this book that you knew you needed to finally get to. Is that sort of... Yes. Well, as the series has progressed from, it starts in about 80 B.C., and it goes up to the assassination of Caesar 44 B.C. It's a big swathe of time, and certainly in the lifetime of my character, Gordianus and his family growing up. But the previous novel uh, within the chronological sequence was called The Triumph of Caesar. Which was 10 years ago. Which is after the civil wars with Pompey. He's finally dictator. He is the last man standing. He's back in Rome. He has his gigantic triumphs. Wars in Gaul, wars in Asia, war in Egypt and Africa. So he's finally top dog. That was the throne of Caesar. Obviously, the next thing I had to do in the sequence of the books following chronology would be the assassination of Caesar, which follows upon his triumph a couple of years later. I was stymied because I would think uh, I write murder mysteries, and how am I going to do a murder mystery about the assassination of Caesar because of that Shakespeare guy? Gave it away. Everybody knows. Brutus, too, all that. So, uh, yes, I was kind of puzzled how to do a mystery novel that would satisfy the readers of the series. The next three books I wrote were actually kind of stalling actions because I'd always wanted to do prequels about his teenage years. 
And looking back, I actually saw it in the second novel in the series, Arms of Nemesis, in a throwaway line, he says, when I was a young man and traveled the world and saw the seven wonders of the world and then ended up in Alexandria for a period. And so that just came out of nowhere in the second book, just the backstory. And so for a long time, I wanted to do these to get him to see the seven wonders of the world. So finally, just as a stalling action, since I didn't know how to do the assassination novel, I wrote The Seven Wonders. And then I wrote a couple of more prequels where he's a young man, footloose and fancy free in Alexandria in Egypt, Raiders of the, of the Nile, and uh, Wrath of the Furies. Actually, that was the end of my book contract at that time. So my agent wanted a new contract. My editor thought we should have a new contract. And they asked me for ideas. And I kind of came up with these off-the-wall, one-off books. And both of them said, no, no, you got to get back to the main chronology and the assassination of Julius Caesar. That's what you got to do for your next Roma Subrosa book. So I signed the contract. <laughs> I need the check, right? But I still didn't have the idea. But I'm really lucky to get invited to speak at classical events. I get to rub shoulders with classical scholars. And so I ended up in Waco, Texas, speaking to the Classical Association of the Midwest and South. And at a cocktail party, one of the scholars approached me and said, I hear you're having trouble getting uh, the idea for this assassination book. Why don't you make it about, and I can only say X, because I can't tell you what it is on the air because that would give away the secret of the book. You know, the irony of writing murder mysteries is if you think you've done something clever or unusual, that's the one thing you can't talk about because the readers will be very angry at you. But it's really funny how sometimes one word can just kind of open the gates. But nonetheless, I got the inspiration, and so I got back to work on the, on the novel, which became The Throne of Caesar, which is set in the month of March, 44 BC, the last month of Caesar's life. Well, curiously, I read the chapter on the assassination on March 15th. Ah, the Ides of March. <laughs> which was kind of an interesting moment. There's a lot of research in this book. When I spoke with you a long time ago, the last time we talked, or maybe the time before that, the TV show Rome was on, and you had said that that was, at that particular time, the most accurate view of what Rome was like. Well, of what it looked like. We had never seen Rome done in, uh, you know, a lot of color and a lot of tawdriness and sort of poverty. And, you know, it looked a little more like Mexico City than like those white marble images from the movies from the 50s and 60s. So, yes, and we finally had Roman clothing. They were very accurate about things like that. There were a few problems with the storytelling just because of the way they, they lined things up. But, yes, it really revolutionized people's view of what Rome must have looked like, smelled like, all the tawdriness of real life. So that was a vast step forward as far as looking back at Rome. Did that change in any way your work, you think? No, I don't think so, but it did bring me new readers. Thank goodness for everything that popularizes ancient Rome because people are curious. They want to know more. They want to read murder mysteries set in ancient Rome. So here we go. The thing about that HBO series and a lot of HBO, you know, HBO was around. They did, couldn't find a hit series. They weren't making money. It finally happened with The Sopranos. That was this huge breakthrough for them. And ever since, everything has been The Sopranos. Rome was The Sopranos in ancient Rome. Game of Thrones is George R. R. Martin, but with The Sopranos added. A lot of, you know, F word and obscenity right. and bad middle-aged male behavior. 
There was a point when Donald Westlake was working on a screenplay of one of your books. Did he ever finish it? I'm glad to have in my archives the screenplay that Donald Westlake wrote for my second book called Arms of Nemesis, which takes place with the background of the Spartacus slave revolt. We did speak very briefly while he was working on it at a mystery con where I met up with him, and he was asking about stage managing. He wanted to have a scene early on where Spartacus would be on a galley off the coast and would witness something. Would that violate the history too much? I was pretty much like, whatever you want to do, Mr. Wesley, <laughs> since he had just been nominated for an Oscar for the Grifters, and you know, he was really he was on top of the world. I was very honored to have him do that screenplay, but unfortunately, many slip between the cup and the lip. Hollywood never got around to actually making the screenplay of Arms of Nemesis. I read it. I liked it a lot. He, as he told me, he said, a screenplay is mainly just extracting the dialogue <laughs> from the novel and then crafting it into some shape. And you have the screenplay? So, yeah, I got a copy of that screenplay. MGM owned the screen rights to my series for many years. We finally got them back. So, yes, if anybody out there listening would like to make a movie, <laughs> the option is available. It's a viable product, but, I mean... Because the series now has so many novels and so much to draw from, my idea is that really they should make a miniseries of The Seven Wonders because the young Guardianus, a young protagonist, goes to each of the seven wonders. We get to do the CGI and see the Colossus of Rose and so forth. And not only does he solve a mystery at each of the seven wonders, but he gets laid at each of the seven wonders. Very important when you're 17 years old traveling the world. So there would be many entrees of how to do something cinematically. But on the other hand, Donald Westlake has passed on, and yeah. there is a Donald Westlake screenplay Yeah, oh, well, that is true. I hadn't thought about the, the sort of the, the rarity of this item, yes. Stephen Saylor, let's talk about Throne of Caesar, and we'll talk around certain elements. Okay, so you're sitting there. This person says to you, what about mm -hmm. at which point? You're going, yes, but because the action involving the mystery takes place toward the end of the book, and you still have a book to write. So how do you get to the beginning and middle of the book before you get to the mystery part? Well, this is not the first time I've structured a mystery that kind of is, is backloaded rather than frontloaded. I did it with The Judgment of Caesar, which is two books back in, in a Caesar trilogy, if you will, The Judgment, The Triumph, The Throne. And in that book, I was really gratified because one of the reviewers said, uh, Mr. Saylor is so confident of his material, he's not afraid to load the mystery at the very end of the book. <laughs> like we're waiting for the murder mystery. What's the mystery? In this one, it's not quite that backloaded. But first of all, I wanted to do a blow-by-blow blow of the actual days leading up to the assassination because it's really fantastic. Barry Strauss, a, a very fine historian, recently wrote a nonfiction book called The Death of Caesar, and he did one of the best reconstruction as far as just looking at all the historical sources and laying out the chronology and all the characters and getting all that in a row. So my copy of that book, consequently, is dog-eared and underlined and all kinds of references mining that for the best material to tell the story of the last days of Caesar. For example, how do we get Gordianus at this famous final dinner that Caesar has? Caesar is sitting there at the final dinner before the fateful Ides of March. We know whose house it's at. We know one of the people who's there who's one of the assassins, ironically enough. How do I get Gordianus there to witness what happens? 
and Caesar's very famous words where he's asked about what would be the best way to die. And he says, well, very quickly, without a lot of anticipation, not from illness, obviously. So loaded with irony, of course. So I wanted to do a meticulous recreation of that. And I do believe there is a way to create quite a bit of suspense leading up to a known event. You know it's going to happen, but you're waiting for the shoe to drop. So there's a lot, actually, suspense to be squeezed out of just the, the foreknowledge, really. At the same time, I had to be laying the groundwork for the other mystery, just in the background, kind of a, a subterranean track, introducing certain facts and things that will be needed later for that event. And I do hope, though, that if it succeeds, the other aspect, the other mystery and murder aspect, is going to make some comment on the assassination of Caesar II and just the state of Roman society and looking at it from a whole other angle, if you will. From the perspective of a reader reading it forward, what we get is a kind of broad-based impression of what life is like. The way you bring Gordianus in is that Caesar was making a whole bunch of senators, so why not make mm. him a senator? Yeah, Caesar is, has really upturned everything. He has won the Civil War with Pompey. This has gone on for years. It's been a vast, essentially a world war all over the Roman world. Every part has been involved with battles, Africa, Asia, Egypt. Caesar's finally top dog now. He's come back to Rome and he's remade the Senate in his image because so many of the 600 senators were killed in the war. There's a lot of openings. Caesar, as dictator, gets to sort of stock the Senate with handpicked men. And the old-timers are not too happy about some of these newcomers. They include even Gauls, people from France. Now, to be sure, they're fairly aristocratic members. But nonetheless, it's always been first Romans and then Italians allowed in the Senate. Caesar is internationalizing it. And the old-timers are not happy about that at all. He goes so far as to make, we believe, the Etruscan soothsayer Sperina into a senator. So even a soothsayer is getting in these days. What prompted you to come up with the idea of that would be your entry, that Gordianus would be a senator? Well, Gordianus has been around a long, long time. He kind of knows everybody. He's connected. Was there a light bulb that went off at that point? Or? You mean the idea of making him a senator? Yeah. In the structure of the novel, the thing it really does is Caesar wants Gordianus to go around and just ask around because is there anything brewing out there? Caesar has his own agents, but Gordianus has ways of getting knowledge because of who he knows and how he can get in. So Caesar is kind of, you know, is there anything going on that I should be worried about? I'm going to leave town very soon to go to Parthia to conquer the east. But before I leave town and wrap things up with this meeting at the Senate, is there anything I need to be worried about? And so Guardianus is his task with doing that. And he's willing to do it mainly because his son Mato is a very a close confidant of Caesar's. Which you'd already set up previously. Yeah, they've been confidants for many years. In fact, for Mato, Caesar's like a second father in many ways. Guardianus is a little jealous of the relationship, but that's his entree to Caesar. And as a favor to his son and to Caesar, he's going to do this. He's going to go around and, and ask questions. And one of the ways structurally for me to do that was if Caesar is going to make Guardianus into a senator, which is kind of like a lifetime award, you know, your son Mato has been with me for years, much loyal service. You yourself have done good work for me. Uh, you, you should be in the Senate. You're the kind of guy I'm going to elevate out of nowhere and appear in the Senate. 
So when Gordianus is going around asking people, like at the house of Brutus, at the house of other people, he gets to go and, and his question, his opening question is always, the reason I'm here is I need to get a senatorial toga. <laughs> Where can I get one on really short notice? Who's the guy to go to? So, so that's kind of his excuse for visiting people. Did you do much research on togas? Well, we do know, that, well, you know, the senatorial toga, how it differed, the stripe and so forth. Guardianus has been raised to the equestrian class already. This was a lower class within the hierarchy, but it was, it was people who'd, who'd attained a certain amount of wealth, but they didn't have the, the privileges of senators and so forth. So uh, he's being raised from that class up the notch to senator. So he's got an equestrian toga, but that won't do for his first day in the Senate. He's got to have an actual senatorial toga with a broader stripe, red stripe, I should say, or purple. So that's sort of his gambit for asking around. He goes to a couple of houses. One is Caesar's house in the country with the garden, where he gets to hang out briefly with Cleopatra. And he also gets to Mark Antony's house. Did you do research on that? Is that a real house? The House of the Beaks, yes. Yeah. Well, that had previously been owned by Pompey. And we, we know where it is in, in modern Rome. There's no excavation, but we, we know the side of it from literary sources. And it had been owned by Pompey back in his heyday. And it was obviously one of the most fabulous houses in Rome. And Pompey had, had decorated it with these what were called beaks, these ramming beaks at the front of ancient Roman galleys and uh, other countries. And they were often very elaborately shaped pieces of bronze and iron. There would be a, a woman or a goddess or sometimes just a really sharp point. And uh, having captured those from the pirates early on, which kind of made his mark, Pompey had decorated the house with some of the ramming beaks as sort of exotic objects. And after the Civil War, when they're auctioning everything off, a lot of senators are dead, a lot of property has gone to the state. Mark Antony gets his dibs on Pompey's house. He's also an up-and-coming, ambitious man, obviously. Is there much information on his wife in real life? Oh, yeah. Fulvia is one of the strongest female characters of Rome at this time. She had been married previously, first to Clodius, one of the great rabble-rousers of Rome, who might have risen to become a dictator if he hadn't been killed on the Appian Way, my novel, The Murder on the Appian Way. So having been married to Clodius, Fulvia, an ambitious woman, when her rabble-rouser husband was murdered by the more right-wing elements, her supporters staged, uh, for the funeral of her husband, they staged essentially a riot in the Roman Forum, capped by burning down the Roman Senate House. <laughs> you can't get much more dramatic than that. So Fulvia is now the wife of Mark Antony, and it's not a far-fetched idea that when Caesar dies, Fulvia is behind stage managing the spectacular funeral that takes place because we see she's able to manage this kind of event. She's one of the most ambitious women in ancient Rome, and the ancient historians who could not ever be bothered to write a biography of a woman, not even Cleopatra. We only know about her from the biographies of the men that she appears in, Antony and Caesar. They never wrote a biography of Fulvia. But they certainly should have. There was, it was full of events. And one of the historians pays her the backhanded compliment of saying, except for her sex, she was a man in every way, meaning she had intelligence, skill, ambition. Back in the days of Spartacus, I remember certainly in the Kubrick movie, you had the patricians versus the... Plebeians. More or less Republicans versus Democrats. Mm. By the time of Throne of Caesar, had that all gone by the boards? Well, even in Spartacus in the movie, that is a little anachronistic because the patrician-plebeian split 
goes way back into the depths of time, the very beginning of ancient Rome. For that, my novel, Roma, about the first thousand years. Because as you have this upper crust forming in Rome that's running everything, they have this republican system after overthrowing the kings. It's representative in some ways, but you know, it's kind of loaded like modern states, like everybody gets to vote, but the people who vote last, their vote doesn't count as much. Or there have to be more of them show up. So early on, it's stratified between the haves and the have-nots. Everybody kind of has certain rights as a Roman citizen, and then there are slaves who have no rights. But among the citizens, there's the plebeians and the patricians. This goes on for hundreds of years, and there, there are kind of revolutionary movements all through that. What Spartacus actually drew on was something that happened, oh, about 150 years before, which was the patricians and the plebeians having kind of a real power struggle under the Gracchi brothers. By the time of Spartacus, and then very soon after that, the time of these novels, Caesar and Cleopatra, all of that, really the plebeians and the patricians have merged in many ways. They've intermarried. But you still have this very stratified society between the senatorial class and the equestrian class, which is rich, and then everybody, all the other citizens underneath that. But both plebeians and patricians are now in the senatorial class. The plebeians have essentially arrived, at least you know, some of them, and some of the other upper class families have fallen down and are, and are poorer now. So there's been a, a lot of ferment inside of Rome. In 44 BC, you have the two classes, the have-nots and the senatorial and equestrian class, the rich people, of which Gordianus is now one of them. There will be a 17-year, I think, hiatus before Augustus mm. appears. A lot went on in that period. As is clear in your book, the reason Caesar will be assassinated is to restore the republic, but it doesn't happen. Well, yes. The people who kill Caesar have this idea that they can bring back the republic, but the republic was broken. That's why they had this civil war. The 17 years that followed the assassination of Caesar are just power struggle, essentially, between who's going to be the next dictator, really. We're not going to ever really restore the Senate, which had two consuls every year. And those were the top dogs, like presidents. So they had, you know, that kind of system of government. Everybody gets to take a turn at the top. Well, that's kind of going to be over forever. And yes, you do end up with Augustus, who starts out as Octavian, the nephew of Caesar, who early on is one of the power players. And his main rival will end up being Mark Antony who is the lieutenant of Caesar. And they kind of fight over who is really Caesar's heir, who should inherit the prestige, the power, and the troops. And, of course, eventually Octavian wins. Yeah. We end up with Augustus and then the long string of Roman emperors, starting with Augustus's very messy family, the subject for a lot of fiction. I don't want to get too far into this, but, of course, when we talk about Rome, a lot of people bring up what's happening in the United States could we look toward Rome to really learn anything about Donald Trump and Republicans and Democrats and what's going on now? Or is the analogy a little bit, little bit far-fetched? Well, I never pushed the analogy myself. For me, the study of history is really valuable. No matter what you're studying, French Revolution, Spartacus Slave Revolt, you're going to learn things about human nature and about where we've been in the past and how people thought at one other time, which opens your mind up to other possibilities, obviously. I actually had to moderate a panel on a, a number of books which are about this idea, is America the new Rome? I don't think it can be taken too far 
Because when you get into the particulars, then you just get into all kinds of, you know, not exactly. However, I have to tell you, in the first year of, of Donald Trump's presidency, there were a number of kind of odd sort of, you know, shivery moments. It was actually just before the Ides of March. I had to write a blog about the throne of Caesar, and I was kind of stumped for what my subject would be. One of the reasons Caesar is assassinated is not only has he beaten all of his rivals, he's top dog, he's not going to restore the Senate, but he wants to be made essentially dictator for life. In the Roman world, it was okay to have a dictator for a year or two. They had emergency situations. So this had happened in the past. But Caesar is the first one to say, well, you know, just make me dictator in perpetuity. That's going to work out best. Then I can get all everything done that needs to be done and go off and conquer Parthia, uh, which was ancient Persia, and bring back all this new wealth to Rome, and everybody will be happy. So what should I hear that very day on the radio but that Donald Trump has mentioned president for life? Uh, he's talking about uh, in China, of course, but uh, this idea sort of sounds good to him. That's not a crazy idea, is it? So, you, you know, as much as I don't want to go there and sort of see parallels, they just keep popping up. Well, what uh, are some others, you think? The other is, because we don't like to talk about class in America, we seldom talk about that one of the struggles that takes place repeatedly in history and whenever there's a revolt, especially involving lower classes and upper classes, this happened in France as well, the friend of the lower classes is often the king now, that seems counterintuitive. He's the most royal person in the world. Why are his allies the peasants? Well, because in between the king and the peasants, nobility. Right. And they're always against the king because they've always got the knives out looking for their opportunity. And they always have their foot on the neck of the peasants. So oftentimes, the king and the peasants will make common bond for something. Donald Trump, how can this billionaire have a connection to supposedly Rust Belt people who are just working class. Well, this is a long historical kind of thing that happens. The guy at the top skips the normal channels and talks directly to the people at the bottom of society. And Donald Trump seems to have this ability of connecting with people who are out of work, hard-pressed, looking for solutions. He seems to be able to speak their language, even though he's a billionaire. What comes to mind is transition from democracy to dictatorship mm. slash empire. How could that happen? Yes. Yes. And mm. so we see the potential for it happening here. But history has a way of kind of pulling rabbits out of hats. I mean, un totally unexpected things occur and are shocking and people aren't prepared for them. I mean, how could this happen in America? Well, generally, the emergency situation is generally how these things happen. There's an emergency. And we have to have a dictator, right? And generally, it's something military. It's something to do with national security. Uh, in the case of Caesar, I mean, they've been through this horrendous civil war, and everybody's tired of it. Everybody. Everybody has lost family members. It's just been a horrible uh, economic uh, hardship for everyone. So they're ready for a strong man. So Caesar offers himself, I'm the best option for everyone, from the lower classes to the upper. I will bring order and stability. So oftentimes how that happens in any society is there's some kind of dire emergency, some terrible financial crisis, something like that. And suddenly a lot of people are thinking, well, this doesn't look so bad. We need a strong man to lead us. And supposedly we see this trend around the world now for this return to strongman government in Russia, in China, 
in the Philippines, people seem to be choosing the strong man to lead them. Well, that's called fascism, ultimately. I mean, you know, that, that's the name for that. And could it happen in America? Well, in my lifetime, it's been unthinkable, virtually all of my lifetime, because of the heritage of World War II and democracy around the world, and we stamped out fascism, and we've created alliances around the world with our friends. That's how we work. But that global model has been called into question, and anything seems possible. So yes, we do have to worry about that, and we should be vigilant. And we could look again to the past to see how it happened in the past, understanding it won't happen the same way necessarily now. Well, exactly. It'll be some other way, but the same thing will creep in. The strong man will suddenly be the best option, and everybody will just acquiesce. A couple of the questions about Roman history at that point. Among the women, religion played a role, but it didn't seem to play that much of a role in the rest of the book. Well, in a way it does because uh, nothing of importance can take place in Rome without an Etruscan soothsaying, essentially. They called it heruspicy. And a priest called a heruspex would, they would do the thing where they bring in an animal, they, they lay it on an altar, they slit its throat, they cut it open, and they look at the entrails. And if they need a cheat sheet, we have these actual in museums, we have these bronze sheep livers that are in sections with numbers and writing on them. Apparently, you would look at certain organs and you could tell it's generally a binary thing. Is the gods favorable or unfavorable? I want to go on a business trip. Favorable, unfavorable. I want to conquer Parthia, Caesar says. Favorable, unfavorable. So actually, there's a lot of superstition at every level because the Senate cannot meet without an animal being sacrificed and a priest saying, well, favorable or unfavorable. Did they really believe it or were they just using it? One of the nice serendipity things when I was writing it is this is the exact time when Cicero, the great advocate of the Roman courts, the great champion of Republican government, is in semi-retirement because Caesar is dictator. We don't really need a lot of oratory from you, Cicero, anymore. One of the things he's doing in his, his uh, semi-retirement is he can finally write books and he's writing a book on divination. How did the Romans think they could tell the future? The Romans themselves had this thing about looking at birds. And you would count birds and which way the birds flew. Right hand, left hand. One is favorable, one's not. But they also believe in an even more ancient way, the Etruscans who preceded them, which was the heruspicy, which was cutting open the animals and looking at the entrails. So Cicero, at this very time, is examining all of this for a treatise. And his ultimate sort of take on it is, well, you know, this is sort of antiquated. It probably doesn't amount to anything, but we need to maintain it because it is stability for the state. There's just the conservatism of it. This is how we've always done things. It's worked so far. This is how we should keep doing things. So to honor the gods and the uh, soothsaying apparatus. There's a lot of focus on the poet Cinna in the early going particularly a book he wrote called Smyrna, mm -hmm. and we read the plot of that as well as the plot of another poem about Orpheus. These poems, mm. they don't exist now. Sin is real, I would assume, but these poems no longer exist, but people talk about them and there are fragments? This is where we get really in the weeds of the scholarship. We know very little about Cinna. He was uh, probably made a senator by Caesar, a friend of Caesar's at this time. 
And he's the guy actually who is going to introduce legislation on the, on March 15th, the eyes of March, in the Senate that's going to allow Caesar to have all the foreign wives he wants. And the only reason Caesar wants this is so as he's conquering one country after another on his way to India, he can marry all the princesses and he can have heirs. The princes can take over and run this vast empire he's going to have like Alexander the Great. So Cinna is one of Caesar's henchmen in some ways, but he's also probably the leading poet of the day. We just know that from all kinds of references. But of his actual work, we only have the merest fragments. It's just one of those things. We've lost 90% at least of the ancient literature that we know about. The subject matter is kind of shocking. I mean, that poem, the Zmirna, is a legend, an ancient myth that we know from other sources as well. But it's about father-daughter incest. And this seems to have been like, uh, this would be what you would read at a dinner party, this kind of. Of course, it takes place in a mythological setting, so it kind of has these trappings. So to sort of reconstruct that poem, there are scholars, they have found quotations of Cinna in later poems that we do have, just because of the context and the kind of language. So this gets into this whole uh, sort of palimpsest, seeing writing underneath other writing. So that kind of research is one of the things that I enjoy doing when I'm writing these books. I spend hours and hours at the UC Berkeley Library, and I do get to talk to scholars up there and sort of examine ideas. So I, I hope there's a certain depth, not just of the history, but of certain scholarship in the book, which is engaging on a whole other level than the murder mystery. Was Myrna that popular? Yes. The story is, is repeated by the great Roman poet Ovid as one of his famous stories. So yes, it was known throughout the ancient world. You know, it was kind of like a bestseller of the time. Yeah. And the payoff of the Zmirna story is... She ends up running sort of in a mythological landscape, running through the landscape, fleeing from her horrible crime. And she ends up apparently in Arabia. And the goddess, Aphrodite, Venus, who sort of caused all the problems in the first place, finally looks down and takes mercy uh, on this poor mortal and her suffering and turns her into a tree. Smyrna turns into a tree, a twisted, knotty tree. But her tears are the sap that becomes incense. You have a scene in the bookstore, which is kind of curious. Of course, books were scrolls, and they had to all be handwritten. Mm. So how many copies of, say, a bestseller would there be? Boy, that's a good question. I, that, that I don't think anybody really knows the answer to, although maybe we could dig enough and do research into ancient bookselling. We know that there were slaves who were copyists who would, you know, they would make copies of books. And for a very popular book like Caesar's, memoir of his civil war, which is really hot reading at this time. Everybody wants to know, how did he do it? So he's written a book. This is how I did it, how I conquered Gaul, how I won the civil war. Now, for those books, who knows? There would have been at least hundreds of copies, certainly, because a lot of people want to read it simultaneously. These books are kind of precious things, though. They're, they're elite items. So you can imagine that friends would loan books to each other, but you would want to get those back. And it's a big deal for people to actually have private libraries, which friends and scholars visit. I don't believe there's a public library in Rome yet, but there soon will be under the emperors. They did have big public libraries, usually split into Greek and Latin. So something like like Smyrna, which is kind of a literary masterpiece, Mm. there would be fewer copies, which is, I guess, is why it wouldn't have survived. 
Well, you know, why things didn't didn't survive is just it's a crapshoot in many ways. I mean, books that were really popular and important, like Caesar's Civil Wars, we can imagine there were lots of copies and lots of people wanted it for every decade going forward. There will always be readers for that. Other books become kind of out of fashion or they're specialist. Yes, there are copies in the library at Alexandria, but how we lost the library at Alexandria, it probably wasn't through a fire. It probably wasn't through Arab conquest. It was probably insects. Ultimately, mold and insects are the constant enemies. And in a maritime climate like Alexandria, those books get eaten up eventually by something. And if you haven't made new copies, then they're lost forever. So always back up. That's a good rule. (laughs) Stephen Saylor, what got you interested in Rome in the first place? Well, I have to credit the popular culture. You mentioned the HBO series Rome, uh, you know, which I'm sure many, I guess, kids saw it in spite of the the nasty subject matter. When I was a kid, because Ben-Hur had won 11 Oscars, that caused this wave of imitation, as Hollywood does. And so you had movies like Spartacus, like Cleopatra, Fall of the Roman Empire. In Europe, they were making the sword and sandal films with Hercules and so forth. So as a boy growing up, those were the movies I saw. And consequently, that was this kind of whole world of wonder I had in the back of my mind. I would pore over the encyclopedia, things like that when I was a kid, pictures of Cleopatra. When I got to college, I eventually became a history major. I couldn't believe I was getting away with this. You know, that I was allowed to just read Roman history all day. I had to put that aside for a while uh, in my 20s when I did other work. But eventually, very fortunately, I finally got to Rome. I was so inspired, electrified by being in the Roman Forum. I got back. I wanted to read a Roman murder mystery because I was into both things. I read Michael Grant's translation of Cicero's murder trials, and one of those became the basis for my first book, Roman Blood. Had you been writing all along, or was this something new? I had been writing all along. The first story I ever wrote that was published was a historical story about conquistadors in South America. And I was 12 years old, and I won a contest in a a national Methodist magazine. And it was published in there, and I was paid $25. So that was my first taste of literary success. Now, after that 12-year-old experience, there was a long dearth. But once I got out of college, I didn't want to write fantasy, even though Tolkien was the biggest inspiration of my teen years, because Tolkien had done that. I did try to write uh, historical novels. I wasn't yet really into the mystery genre. I wrote a lot of erotica. That's what I ended up writing. That was the uh, Aaron Travis books. The Aaron Travis books. They're still available to readers as e-books. I have the rights. I brought them all out as Kindles and Nooks. So if you dare, they're kind of rough, I'll tell you. Not for the squeamish or the faint of heart. They're gay erotica. A lot of women seem to enjoy it. I don't know what that's about. But yes, the Aaron Travis books, if you go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, you can get the e-books or iBooks. They're still around. Had you originally considered making Gordianus gay or was that never there? Uh, I guess when I wanted to make a move into writing a, a mainstream work, That was just going to load too much tasking into the book to make him gay, to make a murder mystery, to do the historical research, to try to make all of this authentic and vibrant for a modern reader. I thought, no, we'll make him a little unusual. He'll be at the lower end of the spectrum. There will be gay material because it's just going to come up, you know, in ancient Rome because of the way the societies were structured. It's there repeatedly in the material, just in the way people live. So I hope I presented a fairly authentic view of another society's take on homosexuality and sexuality in general. And that take is people did whatever privately, then they married. 
Pretty much. The main thing is it's a very patriarchal, male-dominated society. So the men do whatever they want to do. And the women are supposed to stay pretty much cloistered at home and be faithful to their husbands. Among the things the men do, if they wish to have sex with another man, if you're an elite, you'll have sex with a slave. It takes place in the privacy of your own home. It's nobody else's business. But we can imagine that human beings being human beings, they broke all the rules just like we do. Stephen Saylor, now you've written The Throne of Caesar and Gordianus has his capstone. Mm-hmm. What are you working on now? My next book is going to be a third in my series that began with Roma and Empire, those family saga novels. So Roma was the first thousand years of Rome. Empire was the couple of hundred years, those crazy emperors, Nero and Vespasian, all those people. And the next book, I don't have a title for it, but it's going to be from the great philosopher, Emperor Marcus Aurelius, and his no good son, Commodus, famous from the movie Gladiator, up to Constantine the Great, the first Christian emperor. So it's that arc of time when Rome stops being pagan and becomes Christian. So very intriguing. It's keeping me really busy with the research. Other than the Westlake, any interest Mm. from Hollywood on anything? There are nibbles, nibbles here and there, even from Europe. I have an agent in Hollywood, uh, Alan Nevins. He's a really great guy. He does a lot of celebrity bios <laughs> along with some literary work. So uh, I'm in place if anybody ever wants to do something. And they say that everybody is doing a created worlds, Netflix, Amazon. So the seven wonders. Let's create the seven wonders of the ancient world and, and visit those. And you can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.